<clears throat> hey guys, welcome back to the Honor of Kings podcast. This is Lee, and we are in episode four of Cleansing the Sanctuary, Daniel's 2300-day prophecy. Um, just a um, housekeeping note, there was a numbering snafu on the um, episodes, so the last episode that I posted was actually episode three, but for some reason it listed as episode four. I don't know how to fix this, so I kind of have to roll on with it. So this is episode four we're doing today, but we're going to have to number this one episode five. Um, again, I don't know really how to change it or what to do, but there is not a missing episode. Um, when you look through the catalog of episodes, it's going to show there's no episode three, but there's nothing missing. It's just a misnumbering problem. Um, so that's it. That's our little housekeeping. I hope that makes sense to everybody. Uh, and sorry for the inconvenience. <clears throat> Excuse me. So in the last episode, um, we did two of the three pieces of furniture in the holy place. We did the seven branch candlestick, which is the menorah representing, uh, the church and representing the church being a light to the world and uh, ministry and evangelism and, and stuff like that. Um, and we did the table of showbread representing uh, the word of God. And today, as we finish off the holy place, the place of sanctification, um, we are going to do the altar of incense. Once we've completed that, we're going to go into the holy place and um, quickly discuss the, the Ark of the Covenant. And then I think we're going to have time to then lay out um, the steps that the priests went through in the daily sacrifice and then what they did on the Day of Atonement um, to clean, cleanse the sanctuary. And we're going to see how that relates to what Daniel is saying about cleansing the sanctuary in his prophecy. So, with that being said, let's have a word of prayer and jump into this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you and we thank you for this time um, that we can study together with people all over the world and all over the country. Father, there aren't many of us, um, but we are dedicated to your word. We are a group of people that want to know the truth. Father, and we just ask that your hand be upon us, that your Holy Spirit be with us, that we can learn these truths together. But more importantly, Father, that we can influence others to come towards this truth. We know that nobody comes to you except you draw them first. Father, so we're praying for those people that are stuck in the wrong beliefs and the, the wrong ideas that are possibly stuck in this uh, strong delusion that is out there in the world. Father, we ask that you, you soften their hearts open their eyes, help them see what their Bible is seeing, give them a hunger for their Bible as, as you give us a hunger for our Bibles. Um, intensify our hunger. Help us learn more. Give us wisdom. Give us understanding, Father. And again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this word is here to protect us and that you gave it to us in your loving mercy, that it was provided for us. And all we have to do is take it seriously and get into it. And we can find out exactly what you have to say for us um, if we just put the effort in, Father. And we just ask that you motivate and then you inspire people to get into this Bible right along behind us. So we thank you again, Father, for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. In the mighty and holy name of Jesus, amen. <clears throat> 
Okay, so I'm, you know, this is kind of early, so I'm a little slow on the uptake, everybody. You're going to have to bear with me. So, first thing we're going to do is go and look at the altar of incense in the holy place, the place of sanctification. <clears throat> Exodus 30, uh, we read, And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon, of shittim wood, uh, or acacia, um, shalt thou make it. And thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. Exodus 37.25 adds to this, um, and scripture says, And he made the incense altar of acacia wood. The length of it was a cubit, and the breadth of it was a cubit. It was four square, and two cubits was the height of it. The horns thereof were of the same, uh, and he overlaid it with pure gold, both uh, the top of it, the sides there around, uh, thereof round about. This King James stuff can be tongue twisty. And the horns of it. Also he made unto it a crown of gold round about. And he made two rings of gold for it under the crown thereof. By the two corners of it upon the two sides thereof. To be places for the staves to bear it withal. Now as with everything but the lavar and the candlestick. Which are made of pure bronze and gold respectively. Um, this acacia wood overlaid with. Uh, this is acacia wood overlaid with gold. So we've been through what the details of all that means. Um, but we can look to Revelation and the Psalms to tell us about the altar as a whole. What is this signifying? What is this representing? So we're not going to go through the, the gold and the acacia wood and so forth. Like I said, previous episodes, that was handled. Uh, Revelation 8.2 <clears throat> And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them... Uh, were given seven trumpets, and another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, uh, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. <clears throat> and the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Now you can also look to Revelation 5.8 for more on this. Now, allow me to interject here that this verse also tells us that the trumpets are happening at the altar of incense. So you'll recall in other episodes, I said that revelation is happening in the holy place based on the imagery that we read there, um, and that the churches, the seals, and the trumpets all match each other and are all a church history that starts at Pentecost and ends at the second advent of Christ, his return. So... Um, the churches show the ministry character of that church age. The seals show their adherence to God's word. And the trumpets, as the next series that we're going to do will explain, show the judgments that God delivered in each age to the enemies of his people in the church. Um, and he delivered these judgments to his people's enemy to set them free from various hardships. Um, so in other words... He was answering their prayers. They're like, Lord, you know, free us from this oppression, so forth. And he was answering that and getting them, setting their path free to go to the next stage. So this starts with the um, Church of Ephesus, that age, and um, which is the apostolic church. So we've seen here um, through in Revelation right off the bat that 
uh, what happens at the altar of incense is prayer, right? They're, they're, the angel's bringing the prayers to burn with the incense. And then when we look at Psalm 141.2, um, scripture says, let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So, um, you know, there'd be plenty of other places in here that will relate praise to incense, but uh, our prayers, excuse me, to incense. But here you have it in Psalms and Revelation. We have the confirmation we need that the altar of incense is about our prayer and supplication to God. <clears throat> our personal relationship is part of your sanctification. So the reading the Bible at the table of showbread, your prayer and your your supplications, your um, relationship building with God, your intercessory prayer for others happens here. And then, of course, your ministry efforts, your evangelizing, your being a light to the world, setting an example for others to see all three of these work towards your sanctification and your maturing in, in your walk as a Christian. And this is the place you should be in the longest, and this is the place it takes the longest to develop. But all three of these things work hand in hand together. <clears throat> now you may notice from Exodus 37 here um, that this altar has four horns, just as the brazen altar in the outer court had. Now these two altars had different measurements, but they have similar function, um, as we will discuss when we do the walk through the Day of, of Atonement priestly service. But basically, the brazen altar is the sacrifice of Christ and his work for us um, by shedding his blood. And the golden altar of incense um, is his work in, his sanctifying blood work in heaven. The brazen altar is on earth. The altar of incense, the golden altar, is his work for us in heaven. Um, so, spoiler alert, his work in heaven, this is exactly what the 2300-day prophecy is pointing to, and that's why we have to get the gist of what's going on in all of this. So, before the... Uh, da, 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 no, I don't need that. Exodus 30, verses 30 through 38, And the Lord said unto Moses, Take the sweet spices, and I'm going to absolutely murder the first three of these, but uh, stack, stacte, and onica, and galbanum, um, these sweet spices with pure frankincense, I can say that one, so four spices, um, and each of these shall there be a like weight, so the same amount for each, and thou shalt make it a perfume, a confection after the art of apothecary, tempered together, pure and holy. And thou shalt beat some of it very small and put it, uh, and put of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation where I will meet with thee. It shall be unto you most holy. And as for the perfume which thou shalt make, ye shall not make to yourselves according to the composition thereof. It shall be unto thee holy for the Lord. Whosoever shall make like unto that to smell thereto shall even be cut off from his people. <clears throat> okay, so in the incense we see um, that significant number of four. Just like with the table of showbread, the bread is made with four ingredients. So here we have the incense made with four ingredients. Um, so four. 
we've talked about this a bunch of times. This four represents being worldwide. It represents the four corners of the earth. It represents north, south, east, and west. Simultaneously meaning the Gospels. And so I know that can be confusing. How are all four of these things different, you know, either direction points or the Gospels? Um, well, imagery is the name of the game in understanding all this Bible study, right? So we have to we have to understand the context of what's being said in each verse and so forth on how to apply it. But the entire Bible is about Jesus. We have to understand that right off the bat. The Gospels are about Jesus. There's four of them. And so what are, were the Gospels supposed to do according to Jesus? They are supposed to go to the whole world, right? <clears throat> so this north, east, southwest, this worldwide, the four corners of the earth are where God's glory through his word will be spread everywhere, right? So when you see this four many times, it's going to relate directly to the gospel message, in one way, shape, or form, the four beasts that are in the throne room in Revelation, you know, is the gospel and so forth. And when we have the altar of burnt sacrifice, which is Christ, you know, dying for us and his his blood covering our sins, and we have baptism, we have all these things about Christ going on in this symbology. So these four horns are also about Christ because he came to give us the gospel. So these four horns represent that, right? But there's there's a deeper, more boiled down version that you can find in this is that during the time that Christ walked the earth and then up to three and a half years after um, his crucifixion, you have the covenant, which Daniel, the 70-week prophecy talks about. The 70th week was from his baptism to half of the week where he would be crucified, and then the next half of the week would be until Stephen is stoned. So now they will tell you that that last week is something about the Antichrist, but absolutely not. It says he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. And so who are the many? When Jesus when Jesus started his ministry, who was he ministering to? Who was he teaching? Who was he bringing the gospel message to? It was the, the Jewish people. It was the chosen people that were getting this, right? But after a week, that message will be, which is seven years, that message will be taken away and given to the Gentiles. Paul will be raised up and so forth because they stoned Stephen. They reject the message. So this worldwide with the gospels, way down in the lower levels is telling us, yes, this word is going out to the to the the Jewish people, but it's going to be for the whole world. It's going to be for every man and woman on this planet. The gospel is going out to everyone. Um, so there's another part of the four symbology is it wasn't just for the chosen people then. It was going to be for all of us. We would be grafted in. It's worldwide. It's not just for that local group of people. Um, let's see. So in the offering, oh no, wait a minute, excuse me. I'm uh, jumping spots here. As we look at the incense was beaten very small, right? And so this representing Christ in the gospel and so forth, we have to recognize that um, Christ 
was he he was perfect through his sufferings, but he was made small, right? Um, he didn't he didn't put himself up to the judgment of the Romans and so forth. Um, when they spoke to him, they didn't. He didn't answer. He didn't try to make a case. He didn't try to plead his case with the Romans because he knew the second that he did that, that he would be giving them authority over him. You know, he allowed God to be his judge by not saying anything. He he left God on the throne. God will take care of everything that's going to happen. I'm not going to defend myself to these Romans and therefore give them authority over me. But what he did do. Um, is he gave his body over to them. <clears throat> he gave them control of his body, the most powerful being, you know, imaginable, made himself small to these wicked, corrupt sinners that would put him on a cross and tear his body. He made himself small. And so by making this incense and all this small, it's kind of symbolic of that. And then, of course, Christ, he came. He said he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And he humbled himself and he made himself small when he was here with us. The most glorious being that could ever be imagined came and humbled himself to be less than others here. Made himself small, just like the the incense. Now, in the offering of the incense, the priest was brought more directly into the presence of God than in any other act of the daily ministration. As the inner veil of the sanctuary did not extend to the top of the building, the glory of God, which was manifested above the mercy seat, this is the Shekinah glory, um, was partially visible from the first apartment. So the first apartment being the holy place. The veil doesn't go all the way to the top. So there is some stuff that can be seen in that space and the holy place. When the priest offered the incense before the Lord, he looked towards the ark as the cloud of incense arose. The divine glory descended upon the mercy seat and filled the most holy place and often filled both rooms, the holy place and most holy place to the point where the priest would have to get to the doors or something to breathe or um, it would it would get intense in there. Um, so in the typical service, the priest looked by faith to the mercy seat, which he could not see because it was on the other side of the veil. So he couldn't see the mercy seat, but he's looking to it in faith that, that it's there and it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, right? And so that represents us today when we're standing at the altar of incense, that veil where we can't see him, just like the priest. He's at the altar of incense. He's looking towards the mercy seat, but can't see it, uh, can't see it, but trust it's there, trust it's doing its thing, has faith. When you're in the at the altar of incense, in your sanctification, in your daily prayer, you can't see Jesus, you can't see God, but you have faith that he's there, you have faith that he's listening, you have faith that he is going to interact in some way with your situation, right? It's the same thing as the priest here not being able to see the mercy seat. Um, <clears throat> da, 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 da. So now that we've, I know this was kind of a quick run through the altar of incense, but again, with all the symbology and stuff, we've kind of covered most of that already. So once we, now that we're completed with that, we have done our circuit through sanctification in the holy place. So our next stage is to actually 
go through the veil and into the most holy place. But before we do that, I think we ought to talk about the veil itself because there is, you know, there's stuff going on with the veil as well. So the veil being, you know, the curtain that divides the most holy place from the holy place. It is the thing that divides us from the presence of God. So let's check it out. The veil was a large curtain made of fine twisted linen. It was blue, red, and purple. We discussed those colors already. Um, It hung on four pillars of acacia wood covered in gold uh, by hooks. You can see Exodus 26 for uh, these details. Also an interesting note that I should have added at the beginning of this study, uh, with this whole series, that Exodus 31 tells us of the craftsmen who were gifted by the Holy Spirit to do this work. You had a Bezalel and a Holiab. Um, these are two of the people that were filled with the Holy Spirit to do this work because nobody could have done this fine work at this time. There weren't artisans and craftsmen. Um, God worked through them to make this basically himself with the use of the human hands. Um, now, Jewish tradition, and this is not Bible, this is Jewish tradition, claims that the veil was about as thick as a man's hand. Uh, so it's pretty heavy duty, according to them. So again, the veil or the curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place of the sanctuary, which in itself is great of great significance because it was this veil that tore the very moment that Christ died on the cross. Um, Now, Christ's death symbolized the end of the need for the Levitical priesthood to meditate, uh, mediate, excuse me, between God and man. Because now when that veil tore, Jesus became the mediator between man and God, not these Levitical priests. But Matthew 27, 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks did rent. So rent in twain means torn in half. Um, Now, a little side note. This is not germane to our study. But um, this shows, Matthew 27 shows the the veil being torn at Jesus' uh, crucifixion. But in our third temple episode, we showed how the temple was not on the temple mount but was in the city of David. And one of the big pieces of evidence for this was the veil being torn and the Romans seeing it, which I believe, I just used Matthew, I believe that was in Luke 23, where the Romans seize the events that happened. So um, where they say Calvary was, um, would be to the north, and there's two different places that they say it's at, kind of to the north of the Temple Mount, and then the other spot is kind of to the northwest is where these people say that this was. But we know when we do these temple studies in the tabernacle that the door of the temple is always on the east side, right? There's one way in. It's Christ. He's the door. He's the gate. There's one door to this temple. It faces the east. So how can something happening on the north side of the building could people at that event be able to see through the door of the, the only opening, the door of the temple from the east? You can't do it. You can't do it. Um, so that goes to show you that focusing on your details in the Bible and not what they tell you brings up a whole lot of 
pertinent important information if you want to get it right if you want to know where the truth is you have to be in the book you can't be listening to men tell you what this stuff means i'm a broken record with it but it's so true you have to be able to see the truth for yourself in the book now with that being said you know these these details also that are given in abundance in in the Bible help you understand various other stories that are going on in the Bible. Things make more sense. You can tie more things together. Um, you just have to find these details. And you know, speaking of the orientation of the temple versus where he was crucified, there were also tombs that opened and bodies that came out and were running around that were seen in the city. People resurrected in the tomb. The rocks broken half and the tombs opened right and of course in our revelation series i said that the people that came out of these tombs are the 24 elders that are in the throne room scene in revelation because they died they bodily resurrected just like christ did and we have to do before we go they, they had glorified bodies so but these these tombs opened there's a place there in uh, just at the bottom of the city of David, and it's the Silwan village. And there's open tombs in the rock where the rock cleaved in half there. And you can see them there in people's backyards and all over the place. That can only be seen if you were on the Mount of Olives. So what we're saying is the temple is in the city of David, which is lower, it's to the south of the Temple Mount, and that the crucifixion happened over on the Mount of Olives range. I don't know exactly what they call that whole mountain range, but um, it happened over there. So they have, because from there they could see the tombs and facing east, they could see in to see the veil torn. See what I'm saying? By, the Bible gives you the details. You just have to read them. All right. So now I've, I waste sidetracked on that thing, but I was just pointing out I can't help myself, right? I can't. I can't. So now the veil represents the body of Christ, Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. So it was only by passing through this veil that access was possible to the most holy place. Uh, see Hebrews 4.16. Going through this veil, Christ allows us to go through this veil now. Tearing the veil symbolized the death of the Lamb of God, which now permits the believer in his atonement immediate access to the most holy place through the new high priest, Jesus, the one and only mediator between man. See, we became priests but he's the high priest. That's how we can be. We're priests. That's how we can be in the holy place. But our high priest allows us access into the most holy place. The veil had cherubim on it. And now what are these? These are angels, of course. But more specifically, they're throne guardian angels. Now, so having this veil that's a barrier between us and the Ark of the Covenant, having these cherubim on it, does it remind you of anything? Does it remind you of any other story in Scripture? Well, <clears throat> good thing you're here because I can think of one. And it's Genesis 3.22. Scripture says, And the Lord said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he 
put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So you see, it was Adam's sin that drove us from the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden. It was Adam's sin that took us out of the direct presence of God. Adam and Eve walked with God personally, face to face, because there was not sin in them. But once they sinned, they separated us from God. And the garden, the tree of life, had to be sealed away from them. And these... um, cherubim are guarding that entrance right so when you go into the temple this is the same this veil is these cherubim guarding the tree of life and what is the tree of life it's eternal life it's glorification and living with the father for eternity so this veil is guarding the ark of the covenant the commandments which is the tree of life and your glorification of being with god forever so there's your symbology This is getting back into the Garden of Eden, getting through that veil into that most holy place of glorification is our Garden of Eden now. That makes sense. We weren't allowed in it because we were enemies of God, but once we were made adopted sons of God, now we're working our way back to going through that veil to where we belong in the first place, to be in his presence without being destroyed because we have sin in us. Uh, Huh. And, of course, um, the law was eternal. Adam and Eve, they had the uh, commandments because how did uh, Eve become the first ever sinner? Because she broke the law, which is, you know, transgression of the law is sin. So the Ten Commandments were in play in the Garden of Eden. Okay, don't let me me rabbit trail. Let me move on. So the most holy place. Let's go through that veil now. The Ark of the Covenant is the only piece of furniture in the most holy place. You can find details at Exodus 25, 10 through 22. It was a chest of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Placed on top of the chest were two angels made of solid gold. Between these two angels was the mercy seat. See Exodus 25, 17 through 22 where the presence of God dwelt. This symbolized God's throne in heaven, which is likewise located between two angels. See Psalms 80, verse 1. Um, Now you've heard me call the table of showbread the throne, but you should have also noted at times I say, this is the throne in this prophecy. Revelation does show it as a throne to point out, to get us to look about this throne in the north. Because, and Isaiah tells us, Satan wants his throne on the sides of the north. Um, so it's a, it's a way of getting you to look. You know, Satan wants to come down and destroy God's word, which he's doing, which is the point of this podcast, to get the word back into people's daily life. But he's been distorting it. He's got you not reading it. He's got people outright lying about it. And so people aren't reading their Bible. They're just listening to the people that lie about it and taking their word for it. 
he has planted his throne on the sides of the north over the table of showbread over God's word. So again, it's just a prophecy symbology thing where he points it out that this is the throne. So when we look into that, we find that Satan wants his throne there. Now, God's actual throne is the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. But um, again, that's just prophecy imagery. So it says that there are cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. Those two angels, it says between the two angels is the mercy seat. Those are cherubim. So what about them now? Uh, Exodus twenty five eighteen, and thou shalt make two cherubim of gold of beaten work that shall make thou shalt make them in the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherubim on one end and the other cherubim on the other end. Even the mercy seat shall you make cherubims on the two ends thereof, and the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look to one another. Towards the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. Well, for one, they are still obstructing sin, or us, from the tree of eternal life, which is now the Ark of the Covenant. But it also shows them facing each other while simultaneously looking at the mercy seat. The angels, you see, are in a state of wonder over this process of salvation. How could God, in the face of his accuser, Satan, we're not the only ones being judged in this kind of, universal courtroom scene god is being judged too in a way because they're they're looking they're like satan's accusing um how is god going to do this how can he be just but still be merciful you know so these angels are like are looking in wonder about this whole situation with man sinful corrupt or whatever but still will walk through heaven how can that be how can god initiate justice but also initiate mercy how can he how can he be fair and loving um at the same time you know this is this is where these angels are so his justice is contained in the law, the Ten Commandments, which are in the Ark. Now, while they cannot save you, they can and they will condemn you to hell if they are not followed. And see, this is what the mercy seat, this is where it comes in. God's mercy in the form of Jesus Christ and his once and for all sacrifice that shields the repentant believer from the condemnation of the law. So that mercy seat that is sitting on the ark, which is above the commandments, those commandments that can condemn you to hell, that mercy seat is your layer of protection. That mercy seat is Christ's blood on the cross. That's the thing that protects you from the condemnation of to hell from the law. The law is absolutely essential in all of this. Uh, it doesn't want to send you to hell, but it will. So this is how this is how God is just, you know, his justice, but his mercy are brought into play. He's given a covenant, we follow it, and we follow it correctly, you know, he will we will get his mercy. If not, we will get his justice. So the mercy seat's huge. That is the throne. Um, da, da, da. The mercy seat was one and a half cubits high. On the other side of the veil, the grate on the altar of incense, or the golden altar, 
um, where the atonement sacrifice at the last day of the year was made, that grate, you have to understand this is like a grill and a grill grate. They put that meat on there just like you're going in your backyard putting it on a, but this was an altar and not a Weber grill or whatever. But the grate itself was 1.5 cubits high. That matches the mercy seat. So what does this say to the angels, which are wondering about the whole process? What does it say to us, the sinner? What does it say to Satan? What does it say to all of us? It tells us that his mercy, the mercy seat, is as high as his justice is. His mercy is equal to his justice. He is fair. He is even. He is love, and he wishes none to be lost. But we have to take his hand. If we do, the mercy seat will protect us from our iniquity against the law. Christ will protect us. So the Ark of the Covenant. What was in there? Well, you had the ten dubars, or the ten words, the ten sayings, or as we call them today, the Ten Commandments, which were carved by the finger of God on stone to be shown as an everlasting law. These are the very character of God. It was these commandments, the Dubars, the Word of God, the Dubar, that were made flesh when Jesus came. It was the commandments that was made flesh when Jesus came because the commandments are the very character of God. They are eternal. Eve sinned as transgressing the law. Right? So it was there at her time, as we just discussed. Um, this is not a Jewish thing. Just because they received the commandments um, when in Moses' day doesn't mean that the law is a Jewish thing. Because Adam and Eve were subject to it. And oh, is there a, is there is it possible that we can find another place even before Adam and Eve where the law comes into effect? Yeah, you betcha. So Ezekiel 28, 14. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. I have set uh, I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. Iniquity is sin. Sin is transgression of the law. Iniquity was found in thee. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Satan. Satan is the one that caused Eve to sin. So technically, Satan is the first sinner. Before Adam and Eve was the law of God in effect. These commandments, the laws, the ten dubars, the ten sayings, are the very foundation of God's eternal government. The notion that they are no longer in play is a heresy. And those who view them as being nailed to the cross are possibly already in the strong delusion that Paul warns of. Revelation 14 tells us, and I'll just leave this at this, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Come out of her, my children. Get out of this system because it's a lie. The commandments matter. Now, it also contained Aaron's rod that budded. Many say that this, this rod means power, but I believe the following. I'm not stating this in fact, but this is how I read it. The rod was used in a selection process by God to pick out the who was going to be the priests, right? So 
Um, I believe this is Jesus saying that no man shall come to the Father unless the Father first draws him. In, in other words, selects him. So this rod is is part of the God drawn you to him. He selected to you. And the fact that it buds, well, you know, I keep telling you that the wood stuff, the acacia wood and the trees and all this other stuff means people. It represents people in our sinful flesh. So... This rod is made of wood, so it's our sinful flesh, but it buds. It it, it springs new life um, from the sinful f- flesh. New life springs out of this rod of Aaron. So what is what is being in Christ? Christ is being born again. It's new life springing out of our sinful flesh, sin, sp- uh, sprouting out of our acacia wood body, if you will. So, And then there was um, manna in the ark which was the bread that God supplied in the wilderness. And this, um, to me, then represents the bread that God provides us today in our spiritual wilderness that sustains us and helps us to follow those co- those commandments so we will bud like Aaron's rod did and we will have new life from the sanctifying power of God's word. <clears throat> okay. I got about 19 minutes left to walk you through the services to, to give you an idea of what 2300-day prophecy of cleansing the sanctuary means. A quick sip of this Mountain Dew. I'm mostly going to freestyle this because I haven't even done this, but I still have time left, so we're going to go. So we are going to look at what cleansing the sanctuary means. First, let's look at Daniel 8.13. We started the series with it. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain uh, saint which spoke, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Okay, so... That's the verse we're going to try to explain. So, the people, we're familiar with them sacrificing the lambs and so forth. So, we're going to walk through a daily sacrifice right now. This is part of the whole system. So, the daily sacrifice, the sinner, the Jewish person, brings his offering, his lamb. He comes to the outer court of the tabernacle. He goes, excuse me, he goes through the gate which is the way, the only way, Jesus Christ. He goes through that gate, enters the court, he comes to the brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice. At this point, he presents the lamb to the priest that is there. Okay, The priest inspects it because this has to be a perfect lamb and so forth. But the priest ties the lamb to the altar and then hands the sinner the person that brought the lamb hands the sinner a knife. The sinner places his hand on the lamb's head, confesses his sins that he did. Maybe yesterday he coveted or the day before he murdered or whatever. He is going to confess those sins on the lamb, transferring them out of him into the lamb. This is symbolic of Jesus Christ taking our sins. Obviously, he's the Lamb of God. The Lamb represents Jesus. The altar of sacrifice represents the cross and so forth. So, 
Again, the priest hands the sinner the knife, and the sinner cuts the throat of the animal. That's because the sinner is responsible for the death of the lamb. The same as you and I and all humanity, we are responsible for the death of Christ on that cross. We, it's our fault that he had to do this. We are responsible. So this is why the sinner kills the animal. Now the priest takes the blood, wipes it on the four horns of the altar because there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. This blood goes on the horns of the altar. <clears throat> now the animal is placed on the, the grill grate and obviously is torched. It's an altar of burnt offerings. But as it's cooking... The priest takes a piece about the size of a pea or a kernel of corn, and he eats that. So he takes the sin that the sinner trans, uh, transferred into the lamb. He now takes that sin and puts it into him. Now, the lamb is no longer Christ. Now, the priest is taking over the role of Christ because now he contains the sin that was just um, expunged out of the sinner. So the lamb is burnt up and the ashes fall through the grate and are collected. And they are not, they are to be treated a certain way as holy. And they are to be dealt with in a whole different type of ceremony and, and whatever. But those ashes, as they fall through, those represent the forgiven sins of the person that came in to do the sacrifice. Those ashes are forgiven sins. So this person is now forgiven and is going about their day. Now the priest who has internalized by eating that pea-sized piece of lamb, internalized those sins, he's going to do this X number of times. Now he will go to the bronze lavar, the wash basin. He will wash the blood off of him. Um, he will become ceremonially clean. This is like the baptism. This is just like the, the whole baptism thing. So now... Once he is ceremonially clean and baptized, he will go into the most holy place of sanctification. When he goes in here, he will take a lamb for all the people of that particular daily service that came in and had sacrifices. He is now going to take a lamb in. He is going to put his hand on that lamb. He's going to put his sins in that lamb, and then he's going to put all the sins that he internalized himself from the whole day he will put into that he will then sacrifice that lamb on the golden altar the altar of incense in the whole uh, the holy place he will put the blood on the four horns and it's the same process but now what he's done is he has taken all the sins from the people that came in that outer gate He's passed them into himself, and now he's passed it from himself into the sanctuary. So the sanctuary holds the record of your sin. It is, it's like on a, a floppy disk or, you know, a memory card or whatever. It's holding the record of your sin, and that record of sin will be held for the year until you get to the Day of Atonement. So... That was a daily sacrifice service and how how the sin goes through the channels of Christ. Now, on the Day of Atonement, what will happen? The high priest will select two goats, okay? He's going to get two goats. He's going to go into 
the holy place. One goat is the Lord's goat. The other goat is the scapegoat or Azazel. Now, a lot of people will be familiar with this name of Azazel because the popular narrative out there with the people that read Enoch and you know so forth is that Azazel is the leader of the two hundred million or the two hundred watcher angels that came down and mated with human women in Genesis six. Um, but when you look, and and some people say he's the actual Satan, the actual enemy, whatever. I don't know, but Azazel means scapegoat. Um, so if this angel, you know, it's a title, I guess, is what I'm saying. So could Satan be the one that led them down and did this and did that? Yeah, I suppose. Satan's also a title. That means accuser. Um, so Lucifer, you know, bearer of light or whatever. So I don't, I don't know. But if you look at the way this service is going to happen, Azazel is Satan. That one that we're talking about, Lucifer because this scapegoat is going to play a very, very significant role in the whole sanctuary system. So, anyway, the high priest is now in there with two male goats, the Lord's goat, the scapegoat. So he's going to take the Lord's goat, and he is going to put his hand on the Lord's goat, and he is going to um, confess all of his sins, into the Lord's goat and sacrifice it, put the blood on the horns of the altar and take some of the blood. Once he is ritually clean or ceremonially clean, I should say, I don't want to say ritual, that sounds pagan. But once he's ceremonially clean and his sins are removed, he will take that blood into the most holy place, into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, and he will sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. And that will then allow him to put his hand on the scapegoat. And at this time, he will transfer all the recorded sin from all the people for the entire year into the scapegoat, into Azazel. And then he will lead that goat out into the wilderness to die. Now, just as we had to kill the sacrifice because it's our fault that we put Christ on that cross. It's our, you know, we did that. The same here. Satan brought sin into this world. Satan will carry the shame, the condemnation, and the death of it in the end. So this scapegoat is representing the, the devil, and it's being sent out in the end. Just like when Christ comes, you know, this is... He is going to pay the piper. So that's what that goat's all about. Now, side note, if the high priest does not get his sacrifice right, if he doesn't get his sins fully cleansed out, he would walk into that uh, most holy place and drop dead immediately. This is why the high priest, when he did this, had a rope around his ankle and he had bells around his waist and pomegranates. I don't, I haven't looked into what the pomegranates mean, but the bells were so they, the people on the other side of the veil knew he was still moving. Because um, if he dropped dead, if he didn't get his sin completely expunged, uh, he didn't confess everything, they would pull him out from underneath the veil. 
and pull him into the most holy place, and then they'd have to send somebody else in. So um, this is why I'm always saying God doesn't, he isn't trying to punish us. The Bible isn't about punishing us, and he's mad at us for doing certain things. The Bible is an instruction manual. It's a guidebook. He's given it to us because our sin cannot exist in his presence. It's about him telling us how we get past this problem. He is giving us a step-by-step guide on how to get past the sinful flesh so we can be in his presence. You know, it's like being down in a cave with no flashlight and no map or no anything, and you're completely lost three miles underground. But as you're feeling along the wall, you, you feel something and it feels like a toolbox, and you open it up, and boom, there's a, a couple flashlights, an energy bar, bottle of water, and a GPS unit or some kind of map of the cave system or something to help get you out. That's what the Bible is. It's to get us through this sinful nature that we have. It's not a book of punishment. It's not a book of his anger. It's a book of his love. It's a book of trying to tell us, look, if you you have to make the conscious decision, it's free will. You have to make the decision to do these things to get the sin away from you. Yes, Christ is one that removes the sin, but there are things that the believer has to do in conjunction with this. So anyway, the priest, if he walked in unclean, would die immediately. So this is what the cleansing the sanctuary is. Getting all the sins, the recorded sins are out of there. So when you do the math, there are, Daniel has time prophecies. I only have six and a half minutes left. We have a Daniel 70-week prophecy in season one. You'll get the full details there. But you have this 2300-day prophecy is the longest time prophecy in the Bible. And within it, inside the 2300 years of this prophecy, there are a couple other prophecies. There's Daniel's 70-week prophecy and Daniel's 1260-day prophecy. So both of those fit within the 2300-day window. So we are able to find and confirm the 70-week prophecy. Now, when we're doing prophecy, there's a couple rules that we have to understand. One, a, a day, every day in a prophecy equals one calendar year, okay? Two, every year that we're counting up is going to be based on 360 days because that's what the Jewish year was, 360 days, okay? Um and three, when you go from B.C. to A.D., there's no year zero, so you have to add one year to whatever number you get in the math. So, that being said, boil down, simple math. We can confirm the 70-week prophecy because Daniel and the book of Luke give us the details. Why do we look at the book of Luke? Because Gabriel is featured in both books. That tells us to pay attention. When we pay attention to it, we look at the story of Jesus' baptism. It tells us the years of the rulers that were serving at that time, and we can look in history and get the date. But we can also look back to Ezra 7, um, the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, which is 457 B.C. So either way, you have a date. And everything Jesus did, his you know 
his time period is datable. So the 70-week prophecy dates everything. The starting point is 547 for the 70 weeks in the 2300 days. So when you fast forward that, the end of the 2300-day prophecy is 1844. Um, <clears throat> so... Why is this important? Christ has been ministering on our behalf and basically like a courtroom scene. He's been our high priest. He's been our intercessor since he went to heaven. He's been in the holy place. He's been intercessing like he always has. Um, but see, this says um, the sanctuary, let's see, the concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. All, up until this time period that begins after 1844 that's the the uh sanctuary being cleansed 1844 up until this time period he is intercessing for us he is doing these things but he's doing it as the daily sacrifice just like when that priest would go in and then he would put the sins into the holy place after 1844 comes the point where he is going to take the record of all of those sins into the Ark of the Covenant onto the mercy seat. You see, that's, there's where the difference is. He walked us through the, the daily sacrifice, transgression, the desolation, and the sanctuary being trodden underfoot is a reference to the 1260-day prophecy. That ends in 1798. The 1260-day prophecy ends in 1798. And this daily sacrifice, transgression of desolation, sanctuary being trodden underfoot, represents the papacy with supreme control for 1260 years running rough shot over the saints of Christ, stealing the Bible, um, and doing all these things that they did. God intercessed for us on the daily sacrifice through that time period. But once he got us past that time period, once he got us past this Pope, once he got him out of, well, the papacy, out of supreme power, he transitioned his priestly duties. He went from the daily sacrifice. Now he's doing the Day of Atonement sacrifices, which are the end of the year and for our purposes, end of time services, where we now have the Bible. We are free to read the Bible. Um, we are being sanctified. We are being given the ability to make our choice without being threatened with death and so forth. This period of time is the judgment hour. You are not judged afterwards. We're judged now. He is judging us now. And he is finding who is going to be left in the book of life. Because when he returns, the books are closed. The judgment happens now. That started after 1844. The investigative judgment of God versus us is happening now. And Jesus is standing at that altar of incense. And he's made his sacrifice to get rid of his sins, to go through the veil into the most holy place, to put the blood on the mercy seat, and then transfer all the sins of humanity onto the scapegoat, onto Azazel, Satan, and lead him into the wilderness. So this is what cleansing the sanctuary means. It means that Jesus is at the very last station in the priestly atonement service. Cleansing the sanctuary means that it's almost a completed work. For him, it is a completed work. But for us, it's almost a completed work. 
he's about to return. Nobody can tell you a date, but it's close. And it's closer than you think. He says he'll come back like a thief. Go back and look at look at what we just talked about. So um, that's it. I have 22 seconds, man. Thanks, guys, for listening. Love you guys. Um, the next um, series will be about the trumpets. So get ready for some revelation. See you guys.